huge. We are at a crossroads and the future is completely within our control. We're living through the single biggest culture shift of our time. This is the time for us to just really take charge. That's what revolutions do. They enable the impossible. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of The Growth Show. I'm Megan Keeney-Anderson, and I'm here today with Suhail Doshi, uh, who is founder of Mixpanel. Very excited because we get to be here in person and see the Mixpanel offices, which are great, um, and hear a little bit about the founding and the growth of this company. So, Suhail, I'd love to just start off with the original idea. What was the gap that you were seeing in the marketplace that led you to think that Mixpanel was the right approach? The big thing was that... uh, before I started Mixpanel, I interned at a company called Slide. They had this internal tool called WDC, and WDC standard stood for World Domination <laughs> Console. And what they would do is they would just try to do crazy data analysis. But what I noticed was that all of Slide's competitors were doing that. And when I noticed that, that seemed very odd to me. Why was everyone building something internally? Why weren't they using something else? So when I left Slide, went back to school and thought about what I wanted to start, it became pretty easy for me to realize that well, if I build it, maybe they'll use the thing that I made. So it sounds like that was a decision that was made with pretty clear conviction. Was there ever a moment of uncertainty there? Oh, yeah. Well, the funny thing is, is when I left Slide, I was adamant that I should build a gaming company, <laughs> not an analytics company. Yeah. Um, and when I started to go build that gaming company, you know, a gaming company that wasn't very, not very inspiring either. Um, it was like, you know, building a Mafia Wars type game on the internet. But But this is all before... Zynga got really big right? Um, well before it fell. Um, and so that was somewhat right. But the problem was is that when I started building the gaming company, I just lost interest. I became really apathetic and really uninspired by that. And I made like 70% of this game. Wow. But I decided that I was just, I, I guess every night I went to sleep at 12 and I just felt like I wasn't committed enough. I felt like I wouldn't be able to win in the market if I just kept building this gaming company. And so sometime around October 2008, I just dumped the gaming idea and I started an analytics company. So why do you think that was that you started losing interest in it? I just think I wasn't passionate about the project that I was working on. I think that I didn't feel like it was going to create enough value. And then the other big thing about it was that I love writing code. I still do. And it just wasn't intellectually stimulating to me um, to be able to write code for this game that just didn't, it didn't. It didn't feel like I was getting anything out of it either. Right. So it was kind of this combination of how much value am I creating for the world? And then am I even getting anything out of this, out of this project that I'm trying to start? And then that made me realize a couple of things. It made me realize that even if I were to start a project, I needed to be motivated and, and intellectually stimulated by that project. Like I needed to think it was very interesting. Um, and the measure of that was just how, well, I know my personality. My personality is like, pretty obsessive, very intense. Like I'll just like really focus. Um, I'll lose track of time. I'll forget to eat like breakfast, lunch, and dinner when I'm building something. Um, And I wasn't doing that with this. So that was a pretty telltale sign for me. So post that decision, tell me about that first year. When you, Mm -hmm. first year of starting Mixpanel, where were you living? What was going through your head? You clearly weren't eating or (laughs) or sleeping, uh, as you just mentioned. But I'd love to just hear your memory, your recollection of that first year. Um, the thing that I had learned the most after after trying four or five projects and just completely succeeding and failing at different levels, but ultimately failing, was that I just needed to ship something. 
I needed to get something out there as fast as humanly possible and just learn and just learn what people want and find out where I'm wrong. Um, I learned that lesson pretty quickly with all my other projects. And so um, I started October 2008 and um, I also learned that I wanted to make money as quickly as possible because I felt that if I didn't make money, if I didn't charge our customers, I wouldn't know if they truly valued it. Right. Like I was willing to give it to them for free. They didn't know that though. <laughs> but I wanted to know, would you pay a hundred bucks? Right. And so uh, even before there was an, a UI, even before there was a website that you could go to, I was making $150 a month from a customer. Um, and the way it would work was they would just send me their data and then I would get on IM and I would just ping them and tell them what I learned about their data. And I would just do that every day because I felt kind of obligated to because they were paying me money. Right. <clears throat> and we were just using PayPal and they were sending me PayPal subscription payments for 150 There's no billing processor. This is way before Stripe. Um, and the interesting thing was that when I got the UI, I thought to myself, well, I guess they'll pay more for it now. Like, now they can just go figure it out on their own. So uh, I ended up charging them $500 a month. Yeah. And it was weird because I felt profitable. Like, it was just me in my parents' house in my bedroom, just me hanging out with, like, a 13-inch monitor. Um, How old were you like at the time? Away. Uh, I was 20 years old. Okay. Yeah, at that time. Um, and, and then school started. So for me, between October 2008 and then to December, I had this moment of winter break. And so I just, I actually forgot that New Year's passed because I just was just so um, in the weeds of just like writing code as intensely as possible because I felt like if I didn't, I would only have this like one time until school started to be able to write as much code as possible. Right. And I knew school would just tank my productivity because um, I'd have to do study for tests, do homework, things like that. Um, then I found Tim. Um and that first year, uh, we tried to get into Y Combinator, and somehow we succeeded. I don't know why. And the crazy thing was that everything, everyone knows about what happened in 09. 09 was when the recession hit. Sure, yeah. Like 50% of our batch instantly died right after Nemo Day. Wow, yeah. It was like instant death for those companies. And then the few that were able to kind of keep going a little bit, or at least motivated to keep going, even some of those companies just like didn't raise any money. And so there's only really a handful of companies that are even left from our batch. Um, there was this moment in Y Combinator where, or after Y Combinator rather, where we were trying to raise money and we talked to maybe 15 investors and they all said no, every <laughs> single one of them. So there was a moment where I looked him in the eyes. I was like, we're, we're a week away from death. So we spoke with Victoria Ransom who started yeah. um, Wildfire, Wildfire and, yeah. and then went to Google. And she mentioned that she also started Wildfire in an economic downturn. And she pointed to that, at that as being really foundational to the success of Wildfire, that she, you know, there's a benefit in her mind to starting in a recession. Does that ring true for you or did you have a different experience? Uh, certainly no entrepreneur will go, hey, it was really crappy that I was able to easily raise money. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, but... Uh, I think that raising money in a recession does do one thing, which is it teaches you how to be persistent and it teaches you how to be tough and it teaches you how to be frugal with money. Yeah. Um, so like we publicly recently told the Wall Street Journal not over 90% of our cash is in the bank right now. Um, so we learned how to be really frugal and we learned how to make money and figure out how to combat rising burn rates and costs that exist in startups. And so there are a lot of companies right now burning tons of money, hiring tons of salespeople, and not necessarily seeing the return on that investment. 
And what's happening is, is they don't necessarily have a significant amount. They don't. They may not have a super strong cast cast position, and they may not culturally. They may struggle with this. Like Dropbox talked about how they have this like Chrome Panda Bear that's yeah. like a hundred thousand dollars. So we were just talking about that. So I think if anything that you get out of a recession, it's that you learn how to go through a struggle, um, and not a lot of CEOs or founders, particularly first time people uh, founders, necessarily know how to go through that struggle. And I think that makes the company that um, that makes the company stronger. And not to say that there aren't founders that won't figure it out when things like that happen, but they may not be prepared for it. Yeah, I was just reading actually a post on the Signal, which is your recently relaunched blog about um, Max Levchin, and one of the things he said about Silicon Valley is what's special about this region in his mind is that it, it's really the companies here are really good at blowing up what came before them and starting again right. and sort of completely reinventing themselves again and again and again. Um, I wonder about your thoughts of how Mixpanel has done that, you know, certainly in reinventing analytics, but also just over the course of the business's life, are there moments where you've reinvented your approach or changed things drastically? Mm-hmm. Well, we try to think about like when we think about how we might uh, blow up the way people are doing things. I mean, there was one simple way that we've done that. In 09, it was a bit risky to say, we're not going to track page views. Like, right. that was a weird thing. Because uh, that was the golden metric. I mean, yeah. that's what everybody looked to. That's what everyone thought was the gold standard. Um, and that was kind of weird because uh, building an Alex company that doesn't track page views is kind of like, it's kind of like, I don't know, it's like just, it's missing a fundamentally obvious feature for most products. Most people would, would feel that way. Yeah. And so when we started in 09, we tracked actions instead of page views. And this was non-obvious and a pretty bold move um, in retrospect, because in reality, tracking actions was harder than tracking page views. So not only were we choosing something people didn't know anything about, we were also choosing something that was just harder to actually measure. But we felt that it was logical. And the reason why was because it felt like a better form of measurement. Tracking page views didn't necessarily mean your business was was very successful. I remember because I had projects where I was tracking page views and they still failed. So it's kind of like, what the hell? Yeah. You know, why? And so um, by tracking actions, we found that the proxy to a business succeeding was higher. Um, so that was one major thing. And, and what happened with that was that lots of companies rejected that idea. And then the second thing that we did was we really focused on mobile um, when mobile came out. So that was kind of a couple of years later. Mobile started growing really fast. It stopped being an app store full of frivolous apps, like the top free app in the app store four or five years ago. Do you know what it was? No clue. It was the Mirror app, literally. To look at yourself? To look at yourself. That was it. That was the top free app in the app store. That says a lot about our culture. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and how things have transitioned in the app store. Because if you look at it now, it's something like, you know, WhatsApp or Snapchat sure. or something like that, right? And so um, just th- even just those two things. And the third thing was just doing really deep, advanced, powerful analysis. Those are kind of the three big things Mixpanel did. And when you look at the incumbents, like, for example, Google Analytics, which is someone that everyone knows about, um, the way they do analytics is very simple. And it's page view based. And it was primarily on the web. Yeah. So it was really, so that was really easy for us. Like, that was one way that we blew things up for Google Analytics. And we did forms of measurement that it took them five years to add into their product. So how do you explain that, though, to a prospective customer who has their definitions and their understanding of what analytics are and you're telling them they're measuring it all wrong and they should measure it your way right well uh the great thing about actions was that it was super logical for people right we were said 
on one end you can track uh, you can track these page views. On the other end, wouldn't it be better if you just knew how many people were uploading a photo? Like, isn't that your goal? Yeah. And they're like, oh yeah, that's our goal. Well, why don't we measure that instead? Because that seems better. That seems smarter. So logic largely prevails in that instance. The second thing was that the internet, the products that were being built on the internet started to change, which made that conversation easier for us. So for example, when Web 2.0 hit, the big thing the big thing that happened in Web 2.0 was this idea that this technology called Ajax, which made it possible to kind of make these more rich products. You didn't have to go page to page anymore. Like think about Pandora when you press pause. Do you really go to a whole nother page? It just pauses the song. Right. Right. And so the advent of these ri- these richer products being on the internet, page views kind of reduced in some weird way, right? Like page views, you were like re- eliminating page views because it was causing lag in your product, making your experience worse. So then how do you measure all these things? Well, it turned out that actions were the right thing. And then when mobile hit, the same thing happened. Who's tracking page views on mobile? Right. That doesn't make any sense. Um, so it turned out that it was actually really logical. And, you know, part of it, part of building any company is certainly like, you know, being, you have to be lucky in some ways. And so we just, it was all well-timed actually. Like I think trying to build Mixpanel in 2006 or 2005 may not have, may not have succeeded in the same way. Yeah. Well, I'm curious about just the approach to, to building the mobile app. What's, what is it that matters in mobile? What's different about it? What are the kind of key points that you guys look to to determine if your app is working the way it should be working yeah i mean the first thing that you you care about in the beginning is just getting some early distribution so you obviously can't measure anything unless people are using something Mm -hmm. so for us it was about just getting that initial adoption you don't need a lot you know maybe a thousand people need to use whatever you're regardless of whether you're consumer b2b or 10,000. You don't need that many people, but right when you get to one or 10,000, the same principles that applied on web, building web products, existed on mobile. So, for example, um, you know, one important thing is analyzing retention. And that's something that we look at on our own product. We're like, if people aren't coming back to it, right? Because we don't understand the dynamics. If you have your phone and you've got all these, you got all these tabs and you got these folders mm-hmm. and you got tons of apps, I mean, it's kind of getting harder and harder to find the app that you want. Now you have to use Spotlight, maybe forget about the app. So we're sitting around going, well, what's the actual inclination of people that, what's the inclination people have to use our app on a day-to-day basis or a week-to-week basis? Is it the same as web? Is it not? So we really we really recommend still the same principles that applied on web are the same on mobile. Just hone in on retention. And once you knock out retention, then focus on distribution again. So it's kind of like step one, get an initial set of users. Step two, make sure they stay. Step three, uh, improve whatever it is you need to do to get them to stay. And then step four, work on getting users again and then just rinse and repeat that cycle. Yeah, I, I read a really interesting stat that kind of blows it open for me, which I think is Forrester, uh, which says that 86% of the time that you spend on a mobile device is spent in approximately five apps. And your five apps may vary from person to person, but typically sure. that's what you have an appetite for. Yeah. How is a company supposed to get into those five apps um how do you when there's so many options out there how to become the sort of habitual um application that people need to go to on a regular basis or and is that even the right question yeah i think i think for i think they're right with like consumer apps that you might use multiple times a day like a facebook or like a whatsapp um but there are there are infrequent cases like i don't use amazon every day because i don't buy things every day (laughs) um (laughs) it's a problem yeah prime um but so I think that you just have to recognize that. Like you may not use your flashlight app 
every day. Um, so I think that you, you, we just have to think about the use cases of our own products. Um, we, we don't need people at, we don't need our customers to view the Mixpanel app, uh, you know, every hour of the day either. Yeah. Um, so I think you just have to recognize where your use case fits in and then who you beat in terms of that use case. But I do think that there is a limit to the number of apps that people are willing to download and have on their phones because it's cumbersome after a certain point. I keep swiping through all those screens and searching for it. It is very, very cumbersome over time. So I think that, you know, I think the best thing that you can do is one thing that I've noticed is that even just building our own app is that there's a mega drop off between downloading the app and actually using the app, like getting in, just like doing the first thing. Yeah. You know, that first even from experience. downloading the app to just like uploading a photo with Instagram, you know, something simple like that. There's like a mega, there can be a huge drop off no matter how easy you make it. So conveying the value and conveying, um, what they're going to do or just getting them involved as soon as possible is really important. All right, so let's shift gears. Um, I want to get back to you and Mixpanel and um, to talk a little bit about uh, the kind of long-documented friendship that you have with Max Levchin. Uh, tell me about that relationship and, and how that's informed Mixpanel. Yeah, you know, Max Max is Max is like my business dad. That's the way I think about him. Um, it's the best title ever. Yeah, he's he's the guy that I can go to when I want to cry about my trials and tribulations <laughs> of being a founder, being a CEO, whatever that is. And and the reason why is because he's been through it. Um, he's been through it. Now he's going through it like the third time, but maybe even like the sixth or seventh time because he's had a number of projects that have completely failed too, prior to PayPal, and. Um, Max is the example of, I mean, people haven't talked about this in a while, I think, um, but back in 2009, this really mattered. Um, but there's like the difference between smart money and dumb money. And Mar Max is smart money. And even if you were to take money from Max and let's say, let's say he may not be willing to invest at the crazy valuation that you know you ideally want, um, even if that, if that were the case, um, having him in, having him in, uh, an investor in your company, it will pay dividends in the future. Um, and that valuation difference doesn't matter. And that's the difference between smart money and dumb money is that Max will help you through whatever crazy situation you have. And so the way that I met Max was I met him at Slide and I was like the lowly intern and Max sort of got involved in my projects just randomly. Um, and, uh, and then eventually I just kept pinging him on IM mm -hmm. and I would ask him about Mixpan. I'll say, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think about this? Um, and then the week away, f and then we, when we were a week away from death, I kind of had to like beg Max to like give us any amount of money. Um, and uh, eventually he did. And so along the journey, though, Max has been really helpful um, pretty much in every crisis that our company has ever had. Um, he's been instrumental in every every situation. So uh, there are there are lots there are other people like Max. There are a few of them. Um, so if you can find them, I recommend that you do whatever it takes to get them uh, involved in your company. Has there ever been a time where you and he disagreed on a decision that you were making for the company? Um, uh, I don't know if there's ever been like any fundamental disagreements. Um, it's more that like Max, Max is, a, he's also the type of investor that doesn't get super duper hands on. Um, he like kind of lets you run yeah. your company. And I think that's because he empathizes and understands what it's like to be what it's like to be a founder. He does. He understands that he doesn't have all of the information, all the context of what's going on in your world. Um, so all. So what he'll do is he'll be willing to spend time with you and figure it out. Um, but he's also like very logical, and so um, 
the sequence of decisions that he'll make with you are very logical. So it's hard. It's kind of hard to disagree when people are that when when they're um, that logical um, about how they go about their decisions. And so there's never been any serious disagreements. And for the most part, Max will just mostly back what we feel strongly about in the end. Um, because he's like, it's your guys's company. It's what you want to do. So mm-hmm. he's very founder. He's very founder first in that way. How do you, so the, the relationship that you have with Max and what he's sort of done for you as you've built this company, how do you then take that and instill that in some of your employees or some of the people that you've hired to help carry out Mixpanel? Yeah, I mean, one thing that I learned from Max at Slide, just watching the company, was that at Slide, people were extremely hungry. Um, they, they, voluntarily, they voluntarily worked really hard because they liked what they were doing and Max figured out how to build a team that was highly motivated and, and really, really hungry. Um, he found people that wanted to be intense. Um, and so he was able to build a company culture that was pretty intense about what they were doing, but very committed and very interested and happy about whatever they were doing. Um, so I took that lesson very strongly when I left Slide. It was important to me to find people that were, um, there's the balance of like, uh, of, of, of like experience and hunger and motivation and things like that. And so you have to find the right balance when you're building your company. Um, but I really found the value in hiring really hungry people that want a chance to succeed at something yeah. over, over someone that maybe has felt like they've kind of succeeded and they have all this, this tremendous amount of experience, um, but they may not have that same hunger level like they used to. And so we found that that makes a big profound difference in company culture. Um, so as you've grown... Tell me a little bit about the the size of your company, the number of employees that that have grown with that, and how do you stay lean but also also reach that velocity of growth that you want to? Okay, so in two thousand and nine, um, because we were so young, we didn't we had to learn a lot. Like we didn't even know how to interview people in two thousand and nine. Now we've probably interviewed like I probably personally have interviewed a thousand people. Um, uh, so that, that's kind of a weird thing. Um, but it wasn't until like maybe 20, I don't know, 2014, I want to say. Like in 2014, we were 37 people in January. And then 2015, we were 120. And then 2016, we were 220. Wow. Or 214 or something like that. Yeah, that's some growth. Um, so it's like very, very fast. And um, there are good things and bad things that happen along the way. And there's, um, you know, for us, one major thing that we had to talk about was with our own company was just talking about growing pains internally and so uh the interesting thing that happened was that the way that we figure out how to keep lean is that you just have to when you grow your company you actually have to make the mental calculation that you need to you need to psychologically prepare the company for pausing hiring Mm. and i think that's hard for everybody i think that's really tough i think people don't want to do that because they want well in part because one thing that people do sometimes is they hire with the opportunity of growth yeah and there's actually an issue with that, which is that if you just exclusively hire people on growth, um, you maybe self-select for the wrong people during either a tough time or a time where you decide to stop hiring just for a little bit, right? Because they feel like their own prospects are, their own career prospects are stunted. So the way that you can lean out is you can say, okay, we're going to grow and then we're going to stop for just a month or just two months. And we're going to just analyze how we did. Uh, that's really interesting. Right. So just... I think that's like, that's the way that I think that's, if I were to redo everything, that's what I would do. I would hire, and if I was going from 37, I would go, okay, let's get to 80, but let's all agree, management team, let's all agree that we're going to stop at 80. 
we're just going to stop and take a breather and just see how it feels and analyze all the teams and determine are we getting the inve- are we getting the return on the investment that we want to make so for example if you hire a ton of engineers you should really ask yourself are we hiring are are the and is the engineering team effectively building products right or are they waiting on designers and product managers and there's is, is there infighting you know the servers going down is there bad process because there are things that have nothing to do with um, it's just like you are fighting yourself yeah internally so by pausing you give everyone a break right because everyone's intensely interviewing and then you're giving yourself a, a break to even go, is the culture the way we want it to be? Because it's easy to break your culture by hiring a lot of people too. Um, so I think you just have to do that with every, I think every CEO, every founder has to kind of align and say, let's pause. Yeah. So so there are objective things you can look at there in the break. You can look at, are we building the right products? Are right. we, you know, have we hit yeah. the goals the way we want to? Can you, how would you also look at your hiring process? So are you asking the right questions in an interview? Are you screening yeah. for the right things? Or did we hire the right people? Yeah. Right? Because one thing that you can do to inform whether you necessarily are asking the right questions is even just whether you, like you have to ask yourself, did I hire, are the last five people now that we waited a month or two or maybe even three, are they working? And if they're not, then you have to go, well, let's change the way we do our interviews because we're not, we're self-selecting for the wrong people now. So we talk about that a lot. I'm really curious, how do you know? So let's say you're a month in after you've hired somebody. How do you know if that's the right person or not? Well, I think it might be hard after a month because, you know, the first three months of any employee's uh, tenure at a company, is, it's kind of like this honeymoon stage. Everyone's mm-hmm. happy and excited and whatever, and we probably all have experienced that in our, own, in our own jobs. I think that it's just finding out whether you align with your boss. Like for the employee it's, and for the boss, it's just do you align with your boss? Um, does do you trust each other? Right. Right. And if and and that usually is the crux of the issue. And you can say like, and then the next question is, why do we not trust each other? Nobody likes to talk about trust because it's like you don't trust me. <laughs> I can't believe that. It's like this terrible thing. But it's actually totally reasonable to go. We just met. Right. You know, like yeah, we. I didn't know you. Like, we kind of dated for four hours yeah. during the interview process, <laughs> and then then and we now committed we're together. Yeah. We're married. And somehow we just have to instantly trust each other. How does that work? Right? Um, like if you were doing like a project with someone outside of work, you wouldn't just just randomly find people and just embark on that project. But that's what you're doing when you're hiring people. And so I think that with those three months are really about building trust and finding out why you don't trust each other. Is it because um, is it because your boss doesn't think that you're organized enough? Is it because you haven't been hitting your deadlines? Is it because... Your, or maybe trust for you is that maybe your boss doesn't make time for you, doesn't mm-hmm. review the work that you have and is taking forever for you to be able to get something out the door. Like that's that like big trust issue. And then I think you just have to figure out, I mean, it really comes down to your boss being like, what gets me to trust? What, what characteristics equate to trust? So here's the big question after that. Let's say you realize you don't trust the person or they don't trust you. Yeah. Can you recover from that? Or is, that a, is it better to just cut your losses at that point? Well, I think that there, it's trust is a gradient. So, like, it's possible that you know maybe I trust you, I trust you, like my trust level on a, on a one to ten scale is like a seven out of ten. Mm-hmm. I think that's most most of the time. I think that's the main situation that it's like a seven out or six out of ten. And I think what has to happen first, the first step, is not cut your losses. Your first step is you hired this person because you thought they were smart, you thought they were motivated, they had these characteristics that were important to you. It's just really sitting down and having the conversation. It's the first aspect, I think, of building trust is just being, you have to be vulnerable and open about how you feel. 
Now, some people may take that the wrong way, right? If I'm very open with you and maybe if I'm not tactful enough, that hurts you. Or if I find a way to be tactful, but it still hurts you, maybe that won't work, mm. right? I don't know. Um, but it's first just trying to find how you can build that trust saying, hey, you know, what bothers me is that you don't do X. And the other person going, well, what bothers me is that you don't do Y. And then going, okay, let's try. And then I think when you try, if it doesn't go up from like a six to like a seven or an eight out of 10. That's your moment. That's your moment where you go, do we feel like this is working? It's not, it's not a, it's not a you're fired because you're not performing conversation. It's a, do you really want to work for me (laughs) kind of conversation? Um, And vice versa, right? Like, do I really want to work with you? And it's just having that very open conversation around, this doesn't seem like it's working. My philosophy is that if that's the case, it doesn't have to be this like very emotional breakup. It doesn't have to be. It can, and most of the time it usually is, but it can be as something as simple as just, hey, it's not working. It's fine. It's not the end of the world. Yeah. Like, let's find, like, let's let me you help you. Next. Yeah, let me help you find the perfect place because mm-hmm. it's not here and that's okay. Because in six months or in nine months, everyone's just going to get increasingly frustrated. And what's the point of that? Sure. Really interesting. Well, listen, thank you, Suhail, so much thank for joining you. us. Really fascinating story. Happy that we got to hear it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to our show. As always, we would love to hear your feedback. Tell us what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. 